Hello and welcome back to the show. On today's episode, I sat down with Rosalia Pihlayasari to talk about birth physiology. Rosalia is one of the nest doulas, working as a birth doula since 2003. She has attended over 1,000 births and has supported many women in prenatal education, breastfeeding, pregnancy loss, and much more. She's an incredible asset for birthing people in Finland and is a wealth of knowledge and experience. Rosalia and I get into the physiological course of birth, the hormones at play, the unfolding of the body and birth when it has the chance to go undisturbed. You're going to want to hear this one, so come in close, go ahead and get comfy while you tune into this episode with us. Welcome to the Birthing in Finland podcast, brought to you by the Nest Doulas. I'm Danielle Bensky, a mother and postpartum doula specializing in maternal well-being and psychology. Each episode, you'll hear eye-opening interviews with some amazing people who support families in Finland just like yours. We'll help you navigate what it means to birth in Finland, growing your confidence on your parenting journey. Thank you for spending time with me today. Now let's jump into our daily dose of birthing in Finland. Hi, Rosalia. Good morning. How are you? Hi, I'm very well. Thank you very much. Welcome to <laughs> Thank you. Welcome to Birthing in Finland. I'm doing really well. So happy to talk to you. I'm excited about this chat. Me too. Um, we're going to be talking about birth physiology today. Um, and before we dive in, I would love for you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell us about your background story and how you got to doing what you're doing right now. Okay, so I think I've always wanted to be involved in birth since I was very young. Um, I come from a family of midwives, so it goes back through the generations as well. And even currently, the, you know, we, I have my aunt who was a midwife and a cousin who is a midwife, so... It was very much something present throughout my life. Um, I wanted to study when I was in Italy to be a midwife, but that didn't happen. And so that desire stayed on. I then had my first child and um, I realized I was very unprepared for the birth, mm -hmm. even though I had prepared. I'd read books and I'd, you know, I'd, in every way I'd done all the right steps. I found myself a, a private midwife. I went and booked myself at a private birthing clinic. And I was really looking to have a natural birth completely, you know, on my own in the sense that my body would do this. And that's not what happened. And one day my mother-in-law, after I'd had my son, came across an article about doulas. And she said, this might be something that you should do. So I read the article and I was immediately moved to contact the person. And I said, I really need to do this training. I want to be on the training. So um, I got in on the, one of the first uh, doula trainings in South Africa. And I trained during the year that I was pregnant with my daughter, so 2003. And I was attending births while I was pregnant, and I was obviously given access to different reading materials. And one of the books that we were told to read was Birthing from Within. We mm -hmm. ordered it, yes. and it came. And I read it as a doula, but I also read it as a pregnant mom. And so... For me, that, that's where my journey began in earnest because, yes, I was becoming a doula, but I realized I wanted to be different from just what I was trained as. And so I applied everything that I read in the birthing from within to myself, and I, I had a very healing, um, beautiful water birth with my daughter. And that then made me feel, okay, I need every woman and every person who's giving birth to to know this information I have to bring it out there and yes. of course in in those days I mean we're talking 2003 2004 mm -hmm. um, there was regular antenatal classes but nothing different nothing with the kind of um, information that birthing from within was getting yes. so then I went off, yeah so I went off to America and I trained with the author Pam England mm -hmm. to do birthing from within classes and I started them in South Africa And from that, uh, I just yeah, carried on. I carried on with birthing from within, with being a doula. And then I became a, a birth activist. So then, of course, I started uh, 
contacting people overseas in different um, countries to try and bring them to South Africa to encourage the discourse about what is um, natural birth. And uh, so that's, that's where... That's where my path led me to, and that's what I'm still doing today, 18 years later. <laughs> and you brought that with you to Finland because you have I moved did. here not that long ago. Yeah, I came here eight years ago, and yeah. then I studied uh, nursing when I arrived because the mm-hmm. idea was that I now had the chance to study nursing and then go study midwifery. Right. Um, but unfortunately, the, the Finnish language is not as easy as uh, I thought <laughs> it would be, <laughs> and that uh, put me on yes. hold with doing the midwifery studies because they don't do it in English. They only do right. it in Finnish. So that's why I've got that on hold, but I'm still at birth as a doula because I still yes. love being a doula. Um, if I can't be a midwife, then I'll carry on being a doula. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's a beautiful place to be. It's sort of in the middle, but and in some ways it's it's very unique because you are committed to your client in a way that you cannot be when you are a midwife. Yes, when you are a true. midwife, you are committed to the hospital system in which under which you work. That That so. is very true. Um, but also in my, my mind, I, w- I would not want to trained to be a, a hospital midwife only I would actually turn into a home birthing midwife yes yeah that in itself is a very unique angle and we will have also some home birth midwives on the podcast at, at some that's point that's great that's really awesome. talk about that and, and a little bit the difference between and so these are all very similar uh, roles but they are indeed as you're saying very different and very unique from each other yeah Definitely. Wow, what a what a beautiful story! So you have been to how many births would you say across your career by now? Well, well currently I'm sitting somewhere around uh, one thousand three hundred eighty something. Okay, this is really seasoned. <laughs> Seen everything probably, I suppose. Well, I, I was very blessed that when I was in South Africa, I worked with my own midwife. Funny enough for many, many years doing births, and uh, she was one of the busiest midwives there. And we had opportunity to do a lot of births together, many, many Mm. home births and uh, also birth clinic births, Mm. birth center births. And, uh, yeah, I I mean, I've seen every type of birth you can imagine, I think. Um, I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. (laughs) But the reality is that it's mostly good. That is the, the real message here, is that even though I've been to all those births, the good outweighs the bad and the ugly many, many times over. Yes. So that gives one trust in the process. Yes, and in the role of, of the doula as well, for me. Yeah, um, yeah and, and the midwife. Yeah, the usually, and life. the midwife in, in this case too, um, because usually no matter what happens at the birth itself, when there is a doula there, very often experienced in a more positive way mm. than than if you were alone and, and confused yeah definitely let's uh jump into our topic of physiologic yeah. birth and when I was introducing you at the beginning of this episode I was using the word physiologic birth um and I would love for us to clarify and talk about what is the difference between physiologic birth and natural birth which is a word that we often hear uh, used to describe to describe birth. So maybe we can talk about this difference. Okay, so uh, funny enough, I wrote uh, my nursing thesis on a physiological birth. So this, this is something that I'm really passionate about. And a physiological birth basically is defined when childbirth is following a physiological pattern. So the body is dictating um, every step of the way. So there is no outside interference on how the body is in labor. So the labor commences on its own. Uh, There's no artificial induction agents that are maybe given or any mechanical interventions done. And it just continues spontaneously all the way to the end to after the birth of the placenta, basically. Yes. Um, And then, of course, we have uh, what is a natural birth. Today, when we hear people say, oh, I had a natural birth, uh, we're not talking about the same thing. So physiological and natural today is not the same thing because uh, a natural birth in today's world implies that there were certain things that were happening during the labor. It could have been either an epidural or an episiotomy or um, 
any kind of intervention, but as long as it was uh, successfully vaginal, then people will consider that a, na- a natural birth. Yes. Um, I would say that it's not natural because, of course, we assume that natural is something that your body does naturally and doesn't need assistance with. Um, I would say that today that the normal types of births we are having are interventive vaginal births. And uh, so the the natural that people are using isn't quite natural, if you understand what I'm saying. It's more uh, more the norm because that is what is happening to most of the people giving births. And so um, it's very difficult when we're talking to people sometimes, especially as doulas or midwives, where we talk about a natural birth and people think, yeah, I can do a natural birth because in their mind they're thinking that includes some interventions that can happen as long as it's not a cesarean birth. And and why is it important that we try and steer towards a more physiologic birth process for as many birthing people and babies as we can. I mean, you know, people might not be fully aware of why it is even important to try and facilitate a physiologic birth. Well, with all the interventions that have been happening worldwide for many, many years, um, I think we've lost our trust in the body. Mm -hmm. So we think that we cannot do this any longer on our own. But also when we've intervened so often in the births, we do actually start to change um, not just the physiology of the birth, but of the person itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, a very well-known author, uh, French obstetrician Michel Odant, has written many books on the subject. And in one of his books, he goes so far to say that our overextended use of artificial oxytocin is making it that in the future – our bodies won't be producing oxytocin sufficiently on our own. So oxytocin is one of those hormones that we need during life, all all of life, but especially during pregnancy and labor and birth and Mm -hmm. breastfeeding. So we don't want to have less oxytocin because uh, it's a very important hormone for our our overall health, not only physical but also mental. Mm So if we are changing the physiology of birth, we are in putting ourselves into a very tight spot later on in life. It might not affect us immediately in our lifetime, but certainly in our children's lifetime. And to some extent, we can almost see some of the effect already starting to happen in our lifetime. More and mm-hmm. more people need to have an induction to start labor. Yes. And to keep so that can even going. affect the baby. So, for example, if if now the birthing person was born using uh, oxytocin, could that have an effect on their own child's birth? Um, well, yes, because if they did not experience a full complement during their own birth of natural oxytocin, but they had only artificial oxytocin, they, their body might not have as many receptor sites uh, available to produce mm-hmm. oxytocin. Mm-hmm. And uh, look, there's many things that come into play. There's also nutrition yes. that comes into play and lifestyle choices that can you know, also compromise the, the amounts of receptor bo- uh, receptors in our body. But what we want to do is obviously increase the receptors, especially mm-hmm. during pregnancy and re- getting ready for birth so that yeah. the body can function effectively on its own. Yeah. Okay, I think that was, uh, yeah, that was a really good uh, clarification between, between those two. Um, and to go on and, and talk a little bit about the environment in which we give birth. And I want to also bring in the word mammal, <laughs> yes. which, which we need to remember that, that we are. Um, mm-hmm. so when we talk about the environment a little bit, we understand that birth doesn't happen in a sort of vacuum and where we are and how our space is, our birthing space, how it feels, how it looks, who is in it affects the way that birth progresses physiologically. So maybe you can tell us, tell us a little bit about what are some of those important pieces of the, that environment that is helpful in supporting the physiology of birth? What can people do to, to support that process? Okay, so like you said, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. Um, our birthing practices, our modern-day birthing practices, are not conducive to a physiological birth at all. We have introduced bright lights into hospitals because, of course, you have to see what you're doing um, when you're having a a procedure, when you're doing something that requires attention. 
And we have put childbirth, which should be a normal, natural, physiological event, into a hospital setting where mm. they are taking care of the ill. Yeah. And so then the birth itself is just kind of fallen in line with that. And so we have an environment where there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of strangers moving around, bright lights. It's very difficult for, for the, birth, the person who's giving birth to let go, to find a place that they feel comfortable in because, again, they're going into a room that is not known to them. Mm-hmm. So they're not comfortable in that room. It's not their own space. So a lot of things uh, contribute to shifting the birth out of being a physiological birth into something else. If you think about, like you you mentioned mammals, uh, if we look at mammals, how they give birth, most mammals go away from people or go Mm. away from the the other people, you know, other members of their species. They seek someplace quiet and dark and uh, where they can be left alone and they can get on with doing things. And if we take even the, the household cat, when the household cat is having kittens, very often if there's people moving around, the cat doesn't go into labor in front of them. The cat will retreat into the cupboard or under a cupboard, under a bed, somewhere isolated and dark and have the kittens on her own. Very seldom will the cat allow maybe, you know, the the caregiver, the the owner to be present at the birth. It does happen. But there must be a lot of trust between the cat and the owner. Mm -hmm. Uh, If a a stranger were to walk in, the cat would stop immediately. Mm -hmm. The cat wouldn't give birth. Yeah, And so when we think of that, we think of ourselves and we think, okay, but we're not, you know, mammals in that way. You know, we think of ourselves as elevated mammals that have mm-hmm. reasoning and thinking and that must be much better. We should be able to do it way better. The reality is when you're giving birth, you're not giving birth with your head. No. You're giving birth with your body. And it's your instincts that need to come up. It's, it's what's, you know, the generations of knowledge of the people before you that gave birth that needs to be activated. And that doesn't happen in the front of your brain where the mm-hmm. neocortex is, where you reason and you have logic. It happens in your hind brain or what we call the reptilian brain, which holds all of our instincts and our memories from, you know, from generations back. And so th- when we are activated into the, Um, neocortex we are activated when there's light bright lights when there's people talking to us and and engaging us in conversation when we don't feel safe we have to constantly scan the environment for potential threats and the neocortex basically slows down labor in every way possible so you can understand we need to create an environment where the hindbrain can activate and can allow the body to instinctively take over. And that environment is, again, uh, an environment where the person who's giving birth feels safe, where there's not much uh, artificial light. It's only natural light that is around them. They have people they trust in this space. They can let go. Mm-hmm. And they don't have to want for anything at that point. And they're not coming into contact with strangers. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, strangers will activate then the fight or flight response because they have to check the stranger to see, oh, oh, am mm-hmm. I safe with you? Can I let go in front of you? And if not, then, of course, the, we have the surge of adrenaline. And adrenaline so, is yeah. a one of the mm-hmm. hormones of labor that we need, but not during the labor. We only need it right at the very end. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately... Adrenaline is antagonistic to oxytocin. So if we're having little doses of adrenaline, we're washing away little doses of oxytocin. Yes. And this is why most often uh, people that are going to the hospital will be in labor at home nicely, and then they move to the hospital and the labor seems to slow down slightly. The contractions feel less effective or less intense and they space out. Mm-hmm. And then once they've settled down into the birthing room and they've kind of allowed themselves to relax and, and create a, a more of a safe environment, then after about 45 minutes to an hour, the labor will start to pick up again and continue. Yes. And so in terms of, of how a natural or let's say physiologic course of a birth would look like, could you explain a little bit maybe from the beginning when the contractions are starting or the water is breaking and how that goes on until the placenta has been born and which hormones are at play um, along that process. 
Okay, so um, what I will describe now is basically a completely physiological birth where everything is happening spontaneously and uh, following a normal course in the sense that the baby is in a good position because there's many factors obviously that come into play for birth. Yes. Um, and oftentimes, you know, you, you talked about breaking of waters and in, in a physiological sense, the waters should remain intact until the very end when the baby is being born and they should only be released spontaneously as the baby is moving down the birth canal. So many times you can also think of a baby born in the call in the, when the sack is not even ruptured and the baby comes out still in, in the sack. And uh, that is part of a physiological birth. And we see that very seldomly today because a lot of people uh, think that their waters have to break to be in labor. And yes, we do have many people that have waters released uh, before labor starts even or at the very beginning of labor. But in, in a physiological sense, waters would remain intact until the end. So what we can expect as a course of action is that obviously the body prepares for birth way ahead of the actual due time. Uh, the body already from 36 weeks is starting to prepare for labor. And so we know that in the beginning of the, you know, around 36 weeks, we have very low-grade contractions that start to happen. And people call this false labor or Braxton Hicks contractions but they're basically they're still contractions they're just very low grade and they're there to um, the oxygen levels are increasing at this point and so they are helping the body to get ready for the labor and as this increases we can see that the oxy uh, the prostaglandins and oxytocin also start to increase and this is starting to work on, on the mouth of the womb the cervix and at this point, we can see that the cervix would be softening, getting ready to, you know, really become soft because it's quite hard. It's also moving its position from a posterior to a more anterior and then for, you know, centralized position. Mm -hmm. And we also need that cervix to, to shorten. So the prostaglandins and the oxytocin are working on that. So, of course, the body feels them as these low-grade contractions. And this is normal. This is very normal for the body to be doing that. In fact, we want the body to do that. Then once we've gotten to a certain point and we're closer to the due period, of course, then we start to see a rise in oxytocin levels. And so the contractions now suddenly become more intense and more noticeable until they actually become quite um, very different from what you experienced for the first, you know, the last four weeks or so of the pregnancy. Now, we know that oxy oxytocin is, is needed for the birth, but it's also needed for bonding straight after the birth, as well as breastfeeding. So after the birth, your highest surge of oxytocin will happen straight after the birth. And in that time, you are bonding with your baby and you're getting ready to release the placenta and you're getting ready for breastfeeding as well. Now, the more your body has receptor sites for oxytocin, the more oxytocin it can release and the more effective the contractions are. So even um, and many times I've talked about to people about the importance of nutrition in the last yes. weeks of pregnancy, to eat the foods that help the body create more receptor sites so that we can have good, efficient contractions. So um, <clears throat> once we've had these receptor sites that are, are producing the oxytocin, we go into spontaneous labor where the labor starts out very slowly. So the contractions are far apart. They may be 15, 20 minutes apart. They're quite short, 10, maybe 15 seconds long, and they're not as intense yet. But as time goes by, as the hours move on, those contractions get stronger and longer and closer together. And of course, from the beginning of labor, it's important that the environment is conducive to continuing the labor. So even in the early part yes. of labor, we should be having, you know, quiet time and safe space and only invite the people we want to be with us. So maybe the partner and a family member or a doula, people that they have built a relationship with of trust and where they can let go so that they don't feel observed or anything. Then um, we know that it slows down when she moves to the hospital. Uh, if she's having a home birth, that's great. Then she can invite her midwives to her once the labor's gone into a more active phase. And so then she has the support she needs from them. 
then uh, we can see that from that, uh, we also need to have in the birthing space, um, oxy uh, apart from the oxytocin, we need also the, um, well, the other hormones that are needed, for example, melatonin. Most people don't realize that we need an increase of melatonin for the oxytocin to actually work properly. And yeah, so kind of working together. They are working together, yes, because the melatonin is something we release at night. And this right. is why we want to stay away from the artificial lights. Because yes. when we are seeing artificial lights, the body doesn't produce melatonin at all. So we can need it, actual Can it also darkness. explain why many births start at night? <laughs> yes, because that's when your melatonin concentration is the highest. So, you know, I often get called at two or three in the morning uh, that someone says my labor has started or I'm leaving home in the middle of the night to go to a labor, you know, to get ready with them. So we know that that um, is really important to look at. Um, so the me melatonin is something that helps to produce uh, oxytocin and keep it going as well. And then we also have the natural painkiller, which is the... And now my mind has gone blank. <laughs> um, um, endorphins? Endorphins, yes, thank you. Yeah. Yes. So the endorphins <laughs> then come along, and that is your, your body's own natural painkiller. Okay, and endorphins increase over time as well. So it's not like you get one dose of endorphins and that's it. Yes. You start off with low uh, amounts of endorphin, and the more your labor continues, the stronger your contractions become, the more endorphins are released. Yeah, I think this is such an important thing to, to clarify and understand this role that the endorphins are playing in the body and that the endorphins can only be released if there is experienced pain. <laughs> Exactly. So once that is taken away, like using, a, let's say, any kind of medical uh, painkiller, then the endorphins are also taken away. And this natural yeah. high that is experienced and this altered state of consciousness, which physiologic birth has, is completely gone in a way. Yes. Yes, it is. Because the body is, um, it's, a, it's a very sensitive thing. So any interference. Yes that comes in that is not made by the body will automatically stop things. I want you to think of um, someone who is confronted by a predator, all right? I often give the, the example of Lucy, uh, a Neanderthal person who had a, a baby, and I explain how if she were to be confronted by a tiger, how would she react in her oh, life? Of course, yeah. And, of course, it would be instinctive that you, you would react with your fight-or-flight yes. response so that you either get to safety or you fight off the predator because there's no point trying to continue to labor in front of the, yes. the tiger that's going to pounce on you. Uh, so we don't have, thankfully, real tigers in our labors and births or in our space, but we have emotional tigers. And mm -hmm. as soon as that, you know, that feeling of not being safe comes in, the body stops functioning properly. Because it's not functioning properly, we then need to have either artificial oxytocin put up and that will then create a different kind of contraction. It still is a contraction that it will hopefully open up the cervix and, and help the baby out. But it reacts differently in the body. And as a result, we cannot cope as well. And so then, of course, we need uh, we need to get some painkillers to help us, whether it's a painkiller or an epidural. So could it be, or is this far-fetched to say, that in some labors, not all, in some labors, the mere fact of being at a hospital be one of the reasons to cause complications? It can, yes. If it's, not too not, to say. it's not too far-fetched. The thing is, we, we have become used to the fact that we give birth in hospital, but that doesn't um, alter our physiology. Our hindbrain, our instinctive part of ourselves, does not uh, understand that. We rationally can understand that, that it, you know, for us it would be better to go to the hospital to give birth. But our hindbrain isn't able to understand that because it's saying there's bright lights here and there's strange people. Something can attack us, something can do something to us. And so the, the body itself, uh, I'm talking about from a subconscious level, not from a conscious level, is on high alert all the time at that point. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, 
that will then lead to more and more um, potential interventions. You know, like we can see that uh, we have a cascade of interventions that starts to occur where let's say we, we go into labor. It's not as effective as we, we need it to be. Um, so we go to the hospital. The hospital says, okay, well, something's going on. Maybe you've been in labor for a long time, but nothing's happening. We need to augment your labor. Or even if a person is scheduled for an induction of labor. So we need to get those contractions to be stronger and longer. So we put up a drip of artificial oxytocin. And as a result, we have now the beginning of a cascade of interventions because if we are creating longer and stronger contractions that are artificial, we also then need to monitor the baby more carefully. So we have to have the mother on continuous monitoring uh, to check that the baby is okay because if the contractions are too strong and too long, the baby could go into distress. And at this point, we you know, we have to do other interventions to make sure that the, the baby is okay and that the yes. birthing person is safe. So once we have a monitor placed on the abdomen, the movements are slightly restricted. So yes. there isn't the freedom of movement that one would imagine or one would desire, which then could also increase the level of pain and discomfort at that yes. point. If you're stuck on your back a lot or sitting in the bed a lot, then, of course, you can imagine that that would create more and more discomfort and, and unease. And the more pain happening, of course, uh, the more adrenaline is released. Mm -hmm. And so if the adrenaline is released, it, it's even it's counteracting the drip that's been put up. And the labor can be slow to progress, even with a drip in place. This will then, of course, create stronger contractions, which will then increase the additional need for having something to cope with it. Mm -hmm. So the coping decreases as the contractions increase, and then one reaches out most often for an epidural. So when you have the epidural, again, you have to be monitored carefully because uh, the mother's uh, blood pressure can drop. So they have mm -hmm. to give her some IV with fluids just to make sure that it doesn't drop too low. Because if her blood pressure drops low, it means that that will affect the baby as well. So the baby's heart rate can show signs of distress if the mother's mm -hmm. yeah. uh, blood pressure drops too low. And so we're having another thing put onto this birthing person's body that would slow down the labor and the birth possibly, or her yes. feeling of safety and comfort at, at, the, at the least. With the epidural in place, we also have a, a relaxing of the pelvic floor. And this can go one of two ways. In a, in a good sense, it could help with relaxing everything and allowing the cervix to completely dilate. And then we, we can move on with giving birth. Or it can be relaxing the pelvis in such a way that it doesn't hold the baby's head in the correct position mm -hmm. for birth. And therefore, it relaxes the, the, the position of the baby and the baby moves into a not so good position for birth. So it moves down maybe with its ear presenting first or even with its face presenting first because the structure of the actual pelvic floor is relaxed to such a point that it cannot mm. maintain It doesn't help the baby to navigate in the best way, which is with the chin tucked in and with the top of the head presenting that's, first. That's correct, exactly. Yes. Yes. And so that can then also slow the labor again. And if that happens, then more additional oxytocin is given. And the more we raise the oxytocin level, the higher chance we have of a baby becoming distressed. And if a baby's heartbeat shows us that the baby is not coping, of course, more interventions can follow. Either we have an instrumental delivery or we are going for a surgical delivery to assist the birth at that point. So you can see from one small thing that happens in the beginning how we can slowly cascade to the next, because each level needs something done in order mm. to keep the birthing person and the baby safe. Because but of what was previously given. That's right. So the additional intervention then requires another intervention to make sure that that is, and that's how you get that cascade. It doesn't always happen that way, right? And uh, you've seen births that, that don't escalate. But um, to say yes, that it does increase the chances. It does increase the chances, yes. Um, I have to say that uh, for, for Finland, we, have, uh, we truly do have a walking epidural in the sense that once the epidural is in place, after half an hour, the birthing person can get up and walk around. So mm -hmm. they can continue their labor in a more active state. 
-hmm. Whereas in many countries uh, around the world, uh, they say they have a, a walking epidural, but they don't really allow the person to get off the bed and walk around and be active for fear that they might fall or mm -hmm. because they're not able to give full control to the legs once they've yes. given the epidural. So they, they don't want to take a chance. Mm -hmm. um, and so, of course, they are, those, once you've got that epidural, you're limited to the bed. And that becomes very difficult if you yes. can't move your legs around. You can't get into more uh, positions that are helping the descent of the baby and so forth. Yes, with gravity supporting and with enough space for the, for the pelvis to open and all of that. Yes, that's that stuff. Yeah. And so we were talking about the, the contractions and the physiological process of the birth and how they get closer together. Yes. And this is also when, as the contractions get more intense, these um, endorphins are released, which we talked about, and help us to enter an uh, altered state of consciousness. Yes. Um, do you want to continue from there? So once we're in this altered state of consciousness, uh, the birthing person shouldn't actually be mentally present any longer and uh, in our day and age it's very difficult for some people to let go to that extent because it means that you have to really trust your environment and the people around you to keep you safe while you let go and allow your mind to just space out and in that spacing out time means nothing because many times I hear my clients say to me what's a time and then that's a what already five hours, you know, and then they think, it doesn't feel like it, it feels like five minutes. And then they'll ask five minutes later, what's the time? And if that's five minutes later, no, I'm sure it's five hours later, you know. So the, the time becomes very fluid and elastic yes. in this place. Yes. And in, in that she can, you know, let go and the birthing person can just be able to let the body take over. And the more she allows that to happen, the easier the body has a chance to open up and get the baby all the way down so as the contractions are getting stronger and stronger and she's moving towards you know the end part of her labor she will encounter a very specific time where, which we call transition and I always like to explain the transition not just from a physiological point of view but also from an emotional point of view so physiologically, we know that at some point at about seven or eight centimeters, the body realizes we need to get the baby out now. And so the, the, the body transitions from one set of hormones, uh, sorry, one set of muscles on the uterus that are helping to open up the cervix to another set of muscles that will now help to push the baby down and out. And so there is a, a, a gear shift in the body itself. And what happens at the exact same time is that there is an emotional transition where the person who's giving birth suddenly realizes there's no turning back. This is it. All right. Up until then, everything was kind of theoretical. We're going to have a baby. I'm going to become a mother. And it was all exciting. But suddenly, on the precipice of this moment, the, the, the birthing person realizes, oh, okay, now I've really got to do this. I've got to let go <laughs> of everything that I've known and I need to now step into this unknown space, oh, into this, this void is, that I've never been. This is golden. Yeah. So when that time comes, everybody reacts slightly differently. I mean, I've seen many different types of responses to this. Where, but the most common thing that will happen is they will open up their mouth and they'll say, I can't do this. Now, when you're in the labor and someone's having really intense contractions and everything's going on and you hear them say, I can't do this, you automatically assume they can't continue with the pain. And uh, one scrambles to give them pain relief at this point. Yeah, we try Instead to of, save the mother out of it. Or the yes, person we're trying out to of save it. them because what else can we do? We can only offer something that will help them out of that, and but we're not understanding what they can't do. And very often in their heads, because they, they will say, I couldn't get it out, I couldn't say it. Or sometimes they'll even say, I'm dying. I can't take this anymore, I'm dying. And if you sit with people after their births and you ask them about that time, they will say things like, I, I felt I was dying, I, I couldn't do this anymore. I, I, I couldn't. But it wasn't the fact that they couldn't do the contraction, is that they couldn't move past this point. It was too scary to go beyond this point because they didn't know what was coming. It, it's terrifying. And so 
we then, you know, if we if we misjudge what they're saying and we give mm. painkillers or an epidural, we shut down that process. Mm-hmm. But that process is a massive step into wow. stepping into parenthood. It's huge, yes. It's the and first so moment of giving away and saying goodbye to the old yes. self and making exactly. space for the new self, the new version, exactly. the identity shift that is such a big part of becoming a parent. Exactly. So she, you know, the, the person there is saying goodbye to the maiden yes. and is welcoming the mother. Yes. And so that is a massive oh. life transition. And if only we knew that more, right? Like as a partner exactly. as well, the partners that are at the birth to understand that more and to instead of rush to to giving something to, to make that go away or to make it feel less painful, to just sit there with the person and encourage them and be a cheerleader. Exactly. In the moments so when they want to give up to help them That's go why I prepare their partners to see this and understand this. So that they're not wanting to grab something to make it go away. Mm. That if we can just sit with this discomfort for a few mm. moments, it will pass. And this is an amazing lesson for parenthood too. Yes. <laughs> I, I It was definitely a huge one for me. Yeah. yeah. And so once the transition has passed over and, and the, the person has moved beyond that eight to nine centimeters, suddenly... They don't talk about not doing this anymore or needing something to help them. Now they're focused on, okay, we need to do this. And another kind of energy kind of surges inside where they become, again, focused on getting through their contractions. And at the same time, they start feeling a difference in their body as the baby moves moves a little bit lower. And there's more pressure internally on the rectum. They start to feel this incredible feeling of fullness and and maybe even the feeling like they need to go to the bathroom. And... And this is really great. It's not yet that, she, that they are ready to push the baby out. It just means the baby has moved even lower and it's getting ready. So from a physiological point of view, what the baby is doing inside right now is getting into position to enter into the birth canal and, and move down towards the perineum. So as the baby is there, that pressure builds and the feeling to go to the toilet is increased. And oftentimes I say to my clients, just relax your bottom, relax everything. Nothing's going to really come out. If it does, it doesn't matter. And this is why it doesn't matter. Because it's actually a good sign. (laughs) It is. It's a good sign. The baby's coming, but also it's from a seeding of the microbiome for the baby's point of view, it's also necessary. And so, you know, we, we need it. And instinctively, as soon as we feel that we need to go to the toilet and we're not in the right place for it, we tend to want to tense up and clamp up and hold. And so that could also slow down the the process of the lab if someone doesn't know this is coming. And again, the people who are in your space are so important for this, coming back to that, because when you feel safe enough to release everything, including (laughs) your feces, then you are safe enough to to birth. and that's why it's so key to, to have this person in your in your space that you trust. So oftentimes when this is happening, I like to suggest they go sit in the bathroom in the toilet. Mm. That's um, a wonderful idea. <laughs> uh, I used to be called the toilet doula because I used to always get my yes. clients into the toilets at some point because the toilet is very small. You can put yes. the lights off. It becomes dark. You can put a little candle. Uh, you can close the door and just sit outside and let them know you're there, and you can Mm. still hear what's going on. But more importantly, as soon as you're sitting on the toilet, your mind already knows this is a place I let go. This Mm. is a place I open up. And Mm. if something comes out, there's a toilet, okay? So that leaves the inhibition out of it. And it's beautiful to see how once they're in the bathroom, um, how the the sounds they make change. Now they become a little bit, you know, more deeper and more um, intense because they're uninhibited. Their body, <laughs> uninhibited as well, and it's not it's not uncommon to start to hear that they're giving little grunts and little pushes because now they're feeling that that feeling. Mm-hmm. So when we don't interrupt the process as it gets to full dilation and getting ready to push, the body automatically starts doing it without the birthing person having to do anything. And as soon as we all know that babies would be moving down the birth canal, but if you if the person in labor is breathing constantly and not 
actively pushing. She's, the body is working, the baby is descending, the uterus is getting smaller and smaller with each contraction. For force, it has to push the baby downwards. And so the baby does a bit of a rocking journey going down, slowly going down and then coming back a little bit. Then it goes down a little bit more. And when it comes back, it comes back a little bit less. So the overall progress is downward towards exit. Mm-hmm. And this way it also softens the tissues slowly and it opens up the tissue so that there is less damage. Once the baby, if there's no kind of interference, once the baby comes down onto the perineum with its head, if the perineum has not been stretched and pulled by interfering fingers, the perineum has got a very sensitive, um, I call it a bit of a switch, because as soon as the head touches the perineum, that releases and sends a message to the brain, okay, we have the baby in position, we need to get the baby out. And then that is where your adrenaline comes in. And that surge of adrenaline just gets the baby out in one go. And so yes. without even helping, the body expels the baby. And we and call that the, a fetal yeah. ejection reflex. Exactly. And it literally happens very quickly and in one go, bloop, the baby's out. And the Do mother you see that reflex in a non-physiologic birth process? No, not at all. This is a very, very delicate stage of the labor. The, the, the body will not have that ejection reflex if it has had too much interventions, if it has had too, if it's not feeling safe, if there's too many people prodding and poking. Right. And even if someone is just trying to help by stretching the perineum, then it will be lost. Right. So oftentimes, um, you know, we assume that once the body is fully dilated, the, the birthing person has to push. But that the fully di- full dilation just means that the cervix has moved out the way. It is not a point where you have to start pushing. So it's actually, a point this... in which the baby starts to move down without any hindrance. So actually this forced or coached pushing is not really supportive or is not really part of physiologic birth either. No, not at all. But then then how, how does the baby come out if nobody's there to tell you how to push? Well, the force of the contractions. The contractions, every time, remember we talked about this handover of um, muscles in the uterus. The handover at transition means that at this point, the uterus is going to start pushing downward, so closing down. And so if the uterus gets smaller with each contraction, there's less space for the baby to be. So the baby has to move down. Mm-hmm. So yes. a birthing person can just breathe and breathe and breathe, and the baby will still continue coming down um, until it's right on the perineum. Now, let's say that the ejection reflex is lost. Then, of course, at this point, the birthing person needs to push. And they can still push according to their own body's um, plan. Uh, And then there may be a few pushes and the baby gets out. But but the baby is already very, very low at this point. They're not having to push the baby down the birth canal. They just have to push the baby out Out, at this point. And there's a lot less effort required for that, a lot less time. And also a risk, a decreased risk for the perineum to be to be torn. Exactly. Um, yes. And if you are not doing this sort of coached pushing, but I can I can understand from what we have been discussing that if there have been intervention and in, let's say an epidural, for example, and you really don't have much connection and sensation um, of what's going on, then then it can be hard to let your body guide that pushing phase. So you are becoming actually reliant, in a sense, on the external people in your space to sort of help you with pushing. Is that is that a correct way of, of explaining? I mean, it's we have moved so far away from this that when we talk about it, many people just cannot wrap their head around it. It, it seems like a fairy tale because it's so far removed from what is happening naturally in hospitals and in births around the world that is why we made the distinction between physiological and natural because um, for people it's natural to need assistance it's natural to not have an ejection reflex it's natural to to have to be coached how to push because they don't know how to follow the basic um, uh, cues that the body is giving for it 
many times I hear people saying to me, I don't know if I have the urge to push. What, how, how, I didn't feel it when I had to have, you know, when I had my child, I didn't feel the urge to push, but I pushed. Uh, and I, I, going back to my own experience, if I look back, I remember during my son's birth, uh, I was told to push. I'd started pushing. I'd been pushing for an hour and a half. And then everything went kind of hectic, and I was suddenly transferred to the theater for a cesarean birth. And on the way, my gynecologist, my obstetrician, said to me, don't push. Oh, and I thought, okay, because I was only pushing when I was told to push during the contraction. But there was no real urge to push. So I, I thought, I, can, I don't have to push. I, I won't push. And I remember being in the elevator going down to the theater level where I, my body just started pushing. And I said to her, and I talked to her while I was doing it. I said to her, I'm not pushing, but my body, and she could see it's my body happening. was pushing. And that. Yeah, you can really see the uterus contract from the outside. Yes, yes. And you could hear the effort in my voice of the body pushing, but Just I was doing still it. talking, saying, it's I'm not like doing it. You cannot control your body. You can't control it, no. And that gave me a very clear indication of I, up until that point, my body wasn't really ready to push the baby out. And you were already on the way to theater. Was that this at that point? Because we yes. had a, you know, we had a baby that was in distress. And... Yes, that was in that moment already. Yeah. So it was very interesting to feel that, and then I knew with when I had my daughter that I needed to fully dilate. It didn't mean anything, right? In terms of getting ready to push, it just means that I could have the baby come now safely without damaging my cervix. Yes. And so I waited until I had that incredible urge mm. that overtook me that I, I couldn't hold back. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of happened quite quickly, quite spontaneously. And the midwife even said, you know, like, wow, okay, she's here, you know. And I had to put my hand down in between my legs to feel my baby's head. And I thought, oh, I can feel her head. She really is here. <laughs> and then <laughs> oh, what an exciting moment. my arms. And then if we follow up after <laughs> oh, well, that, yes, that, because I just thought I couldn't do it. <laughs> How amazing. Um, yeah, so then that actually brings us nicely to the last bit I wanted us to talk about, which is the placenta. Uh, yes. What, what happens then? And I mean, it's such an important piece of the birth, and especially that time window between the baby's birth and the placenta is birth, because it's a time that historically has been quite challenging in terms mm -hmm. of the blood loss and such. So it's a time where, for example, midwives are very antsy, <laughs> nervous to get the placenta born so how can we really support the physiology of the birth uh, of that of the placenta at the end what's going on there well as soon as your baby is born there is a lull in the contractions that allows you to take your baby and look at your baby and bond with your baby because remember we have this increased surge of oxytocin and also we've just had a dose of adrenaline which wakes us up from our labor land Uh, it, it allows yes, us to see better, to that. hear better, to smell better. And so at that point, we imprint on our baby and our baby imprints on us. As we're looking at each other, we don't have to understand it. We don't have to see what is going on. It is happening automa automatically mm. at that point. And while you're doing that, of course, your hormones are so uh, increased that uh, that starts to help the placenta to detach from the, from the uterus itself and it's the same hormone oxytocin that it's oxytocin that is doing that yes because it's still your, your uterus is still contracting at this point and the smaller and smaller it contracts the less space the actual placenta has to hold on to the wall of the uterus and so it starts to slough off and come away and we see this that the placenta is ready to be birthed where there's a little bit of an extra gush of blood that comes out and it tells us that the placenta has separated And uh, with a, a very gentle bearing down and possibly somebody just guiding the placenta out with the, the cord, the placenta then will easily and smoothly come out. Yes. And, and the more course, undisturbed time we have with the baby and the more the baby has a chance to suckle at the nipples and at the breast and to be skin to skin and to move with their legs on the uterus, the more we yes. can promote the physiology and so this is a time where really we want to be stepping back from the mom and the baby that's and really right, just yes. allowing them to be in their special bubble that has been now 
possibly in a physiological birth of yes. the mother and to just allow them to be together, not probing, not taking the baby away, keeping the baby attached with the umbilical cord, at least until the placenta is born, um, to really help with that so that there is no postpartum hemorrhaging and that the, the mother is safe and the baby safe right next to the next to the mother and still attached also to the umbilical cord. Exactly. And also, of course, while we're waiting for the placenta to detach, we have the cord that is still pulsating. And while the cord is still pulsating, the placenta is not detaching. And we need the cord to finish pulsating for two reasons. One, to give the signal to the placenta to detach. And two, to give the baby all of its um, blood storage that it needs, that you know, the last bit of blood from the placenta going back to the baby. And it, it's very interesting how we circumvented that for a long time by immediately clamping the cord and, and cutting it and, you know, separating baby from the mother ahead of time in a way, um, which possibly could have led to then the need to give the oxytocin shot, the artificial oxytocin shot after birth, because there was more incidences of actual postpartum hemorrhage. I just want to read a little quote here uh, by a doctor. It says, another thing very injurious to the child is the tying and cutting of the navel string to soothe. We should always be left till the child has not only repeatedly breathed, but till all pulsation in the cord ceases. As otherwise, the child is much weaker than it ought to be, a part of the blood being left in the placenta, which ought to have been in the child. And at the same time, the placenta does not does not so naturally collapse and withdraw itself from the sides of the uterus and is not therefore removed with so much safety and certainty. This was written... It's an old one. Yeah, not now. It was written in 1794 by Dr. Erasmus Darwin, so Charles Darwin's father. And he recognized back then the importance of leaving the cord to stop on its own. So we have come so far away from that. But we have now changed the tide. It's going back. We, we recognize, even the WHO mm-hmm. recognizes, the, the importance of delayed cord clamping. Well, optimal. Optimal, <laughs> I yes. would argue. Yes. That's not yes. completely yes, in line with natural, but... Uh, yes. At it's least optimal we cord clamping, not delayed, because it's the other one who's, that's premature. So yes. this is a language, like a wording... Slight wording thing, but it's such an important, but it's important one. Distinction, that, yes, definitely. Okay, well, we yeah. are we are nearing the end of our conversation, and I just want to also mention that Rosalia is giving antenatal childbirth education as a service. And uh, could you tell us, are you doing it for groups or couples? Is it part of your doula package, or can it be bought separately? Okay, so I do classes and they can be tailor-made to everybody. I can hold group classes as well as individual classes. I do have a doula package that includes classes as well at a much reduced price than if one were to just do classes. Um, And also with the Nest doulas, we will be having antenatal classes that will be giving all of this information as well. So there, there are many ways of being able to access this information either through me or through the nest Uh, so if you're interested you're welcome to go to my website uh, which is www.birth.fi and uh, find out more information there and then if you want to tailor make your own classes with me you're more than welcome to do that that's amazing yeah antenatal childbirth education is really important part of birth preparation and uh, we've seen also from the research that People who are more prepared are having more positive outcomes of their birth. And especially if you couple that with the support of an ongoing support person, such as a doula, and it's continuous support with a person that you feel safe with. We'll maybe have more on that uh, in future episodes. Looking forward to that, definitely. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Birthing in Finland. That was Rosalia Pihlajasari, who spoke about the physiology of birth, the birth hormones, and the importance of a supportive environment and people. I hope you enjoyed listening and that you'll join me next time for a brand new episode.
Thank you for tuning in to the Birthing in Finland podcast. To get the show notes for this episode, go to doulacollective.fi forward slash birthing in Finland. If you enjoyed the episode, go ahead and share this with someone who you think needs to hear it. A friend, a colleague, a neighbor. Help us get the word out so that more families can start enjoying these conversations. See you next time when I introduce you to another amazing person supporting families just like yours.